Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco and drink. I'm Steve Ryder in the lion's den, and I have the man with probably the best accent in all of Holy <laughs> Smokes, Eric DeFour. It's DeFour, right? DeFour, yes. Yes. <laughs> and uh, dude, welcome to the podcast, my man. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. I've, I've had you on the list for a while, and we've, true. We, we've gone back and forth and trying to coordinate schedules mm-hmm. and I was like all right I just I gotta get a, a date set that works for Eric so that way I can get a bunch done in a row and so thank you for having me yeah appreciate so that. first question what you smoking I'm smoking uh Vegas 5 triple a first time actually it's quite a good cigar yeah it's one that I that was in my portable humidor it's one of yours yeah yeah <laughs> I like it yeah and then I have a safari cigar. I'm getting low on these Joe Basil, so we're going to need some more of these for the guests. <laughs> Just dropping that hint. So people can tell you don't have an American accent. I'm from Paris, Texas. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, w- I was born in France, in Burgundy, more precisely. Yeah. Burgundy. Now, where is that in the country? Burgundy is um, east of France. Might have heard about the wines that are produced there. Yeah. Kind of decent wines. Decent yeah. wines. <laughs> yeah, they're very good, actually. Is there anywhere in France that doesn't make decent wines? No, I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of a tradition in France. Yeah, it's a beautiful region. Yeah. What kind of home did you grow up in? I grew up in a Catholic home. Very Roman Catholic, French, traditional background. So meaning we would go to Mass twice a year, usually for Easter and uh, Christmas. So it was a very traditional French uh, background, not very religious at all. So I had a knowledge of God, but uh, I wasn't saved for sure. I was just a regular French kid. <laughs> Siblings, what did your parents do? Yeah, I had uh, one sister who passed away when she was 15 and another mm-hmm. sister who's uh, three years older than me. My mom worked at a bank and my dad was a World War II veteran who's still alive. He's 97. And so he worked at factories and different things. Nice. And what sort of a kid were you in growing up? What sort of a kid was I? Well, I was a kid who was playing outside a lot. If you remember those times, you know, when we could play outside forever. And yeah. uh, very, I'm, I'd say, quiet kid. Yeah, mostly. Mostly. <laughs> so what did you do like high school, college, young adult years? Yeah, I went to uh, college and uh, studied diplomacy. Really? Or, yeah, really. And then that's when my life changed, when I was at, at the very end of uh, uh, studying diplomacy. That's pretty much when I, I had an encounter with God that radically changed my life. Talk about that. Okay, so uh, it's a long story. You ready yeah, for yeah, that? But <laughs> we, we, we need long stories. So I always loved God. Uh, really? I was, yeah, Okay. Since I was a little kid, as far as I can remember, I wanted to serve God, but I didn't know him. I uh, had a, really a s- very small knowledge of God. And I uh, would go to Mass, like I said, once in a while. But I, I always loved Jesus. And for some reason, I thought the day I die, if I know that I'm dying, my last thought has to be toward God. You know, I want to think about him. But uh, that didn't go any further than that. So I had a yeah. normal life and uh, did the... Same mistakes that most of the kids of my age would do. Yeah. And uh, one day at school, so I went to public schools, because in France, if you remain in the public education system, it's free. 
you know, from kindergarten to PhD if you want. Oh, so really? it's, yeah, yeah, it's kind of unique socialist kind of <laughs> education anyways. So I was in uh, high school when uh, a teacher of economy, the first lesson we had with him, he told us that, which was against the law, still is, he spoke about Jesus. And I was like blown away. I was, this guy is totally crazy. He could lose his job doing that. And he told us basically, Jesus was not a religion, but a person you need to meet with. And I thought, this guy is either is totally crazy, which I thought he was, or yeah. he knows something that I don't. And because it happened that I was his best student, we started talking together and talking together. And um, he was not a believer, he still is not a believer. Believe it or not. What? Yes. I was brought to Christ by someone who is not a believer. Wow. <laughs> Bear with me. <laughs> yeah. So he's a, he studied the Pentecostal denominations in France and especially was writing a thesis on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Trying to understand, because he was a sociologist, so trying to understand what was behind that, if people were making that up or, or if it was really something from the divine. And so um, we talked and talked, and he told me that uh, they, him and his wife was about to get a divorce. They were not doing well together. And one day he said, why don't you come with me to his wife to this uh, Pentecostal church, and I'm going to record the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the speaking in tongues, because he was trying to translate those speaking in tongues to understand what they were saying, if it was possible. And so that day she went with him and got saved. And, uh, but he did not, because he was very intellectual. And yeah. uh, One night, he invited me with some friends, had a dinner at his place, and uh, with two of my best friends. And during the conversations over the dinner, his wife told me, uh, Eric, you're not saved. I was furious against her. But she was my teacher's wife, so I couldn't say a word. And she, she met the dinner, I was at yeah. their house. So yeah. it, was, it was like an arrow that pierced my heart. And I was mad, but it never left me. And I began asking myself, am I saved or, or what? And uh, I had no answer to that question. I didn't yeah. know if I was saved or not. Yeah. And uh, I had no way to know for sure, because when you're a Catholic, you believe the church takes care of that for you, but you don't have a personal you know, a conviction that you're saved. And it went like this for months. And she was always asking, uh, asking me, would you like to come to our church one morning, one Sunday morning, you know? And, and I was like, nah, not really. And... But one day I was so tired of her inviting me that it was the Sunday of the Pentecost Sunday, I think, that I went, finally. And um, my motorbike had problems, couldn't start it. I mean, there was all kinds of issues, but finally I was able to go there. And when I pushed the door, there was about maybe 60 people there. But I instantly knew that God was there. And I, I can't explain it. And I remember her eyes and her smile. And, but I knew immediately that I was a sinner. And I immediately knew that I didn't want to give up my sins. That was a lot. <laughs> you didn't want to. I didn't want to. Mostly because I was fooling around with girls and stuff. And I, I was 17 and I was not interested in changing that. Yeah. And so for five years, I resisted uh, God's calling. And she kept praying for me, praying and praying and praying. Till one day, I was a student in Paris at university, studying diplomacy and international you know, laws and stuff like that. And um, I was in my, uh, in my student bedroom in Paris, and suddenly I, I had a kind of a vision of a huge chasm and void under me. And I felt 
the Holy Spirit tell you, I, I can tell you it's the Holy Spirit now. I didn't know by then. I had an idea. It might, might be. But he told me, this is the last time I'm calling you. And wow. this is your destination if you don't wow. surrender to me. Wow. So that day I was less stupid than the other days. <laughs> and I finally said yes to God. So I had experiences before that, years before, you know, like when I was maybe 14 years old, I, had a, I found a little New Testament in my parents' um, bookshelves. And then I opened it and I found this verse that says, you know, if you really believe with all your heart that what you're asking, uh, God is going to give it to you, then it will, you will see it happening. And I was like waiting for a friend to go on, on a bike ride. And I was like, I really don't want to see that friend. But okay, if this is true, I'm going to pray that this guy doesn't come and doesn't show up. And for no reason, he never showed up. Hmm. And I got scared because I was like, someone heard me. And so it was like step by step, little hints. But I never made a decision for Christ till that evening when I was a student in Paris and alone in my bedroom by myself. And I finally surrendered my life to Christ. How did that change you? And direction in radically, your life and all that? Radically. How so? Uh, I, was always, I was a very good student, but I was always afraid of dying. Uh, I couldn't cross a street without thinking maybe if a car hits me. And I'll, uh, if I die, I don't know where I'm going. I had everything. I, had, you know, uh, I was a successful student and many different things, but I wasn't sure about my eternal destiny. So uh, that changed that radically. I stopped fooling around. I really, I became a, a believer and I dedicated my life to Christ like a month after. Like I was convinced that I wanted to serve him and I didn't want to do anything else. I wanted to commit my life to him, you know, 100%. And um, that changed me. My parents got scared because they, they were Catholics. Yeah. And then they saw me, I, I, I quit on going to nightclubs and uh, bars and stuff. I was quite radical right away. And then I, I was reading my Bible every day. And so they got scared and they said, what's happening? Are, are you in a cult? Because <laughs> when you're in France, you have to understand by then it's not true anymore. But by then, uh, being a Christian without being Catholic was being in a cult. Hmm. We even have a saying, you know, whenever uh, food is, doesn't look right, we have a saying that is like, oh, don't touch it. It doesn't look Catholic meaning it might not be as good as it looks or it might be bad for you, so don't touch it. Yeah. So anyways, my parents got scared and uh, they were like, we'd like you to resume, you know, going out with your friends and going, you know, nightclubs and stuff, which surprised me because they were Catholics and they were not supposed to say that to me. But um, yeah, my life changed then. Did it change because you were studying diplomacy and international law? Uh-huh. Did you change that major? No, I, I kept it till the very end of my studies. I thought that I would join UN. Actually, I applied to join UN. Really? Yeah. What, what was the draw of diplomacy, international law, etc.? What, what was the draw for you? Uh, first, I wanted to serve my, uh, my country oh. and overseas and um, promote you know, uh, the ideals of uh, human rights. And uh, I thought France was a country of, and still is, country of human rights. And I thought I could make a difference there. And I wanted to travel, see the world. So that was the, the draw. Yeah. So you have this deep love for your country. Here in America, we have this conception of France. Careful that, what you're going to say. No, no, that, that, no that, 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 I mean, could be a fa- I, I made a joke on Facebook and you kind of called me on it a little bit. And did I? I yeah, you remember. did. Yeah, you did. 
and uh, I was like, no. So, so talk about France, the country, how you know it, and what makes it so special. Because I've been there once, and I freaking loved it. I mean, I, I spent some time in Paris. Paris is a great city. But I went up to Normandy, uh-huh. and I fell in love. I went, I went to Omaha Beach Indeed. and the yep. Normandy American Cemetery yes. Yes. and saw all that. But the countryside was unbelievable. I fell in love with the people. Mm-hmm. I fell in love with that area. I was like, I'd love to come up here and spend a month, get an Airbnb, yeah. and just spend some time here. Because this is just, it's so, it's, it's cool. I have to confess, it's a beautiful country. Many different sceneries. And yeah. Different kind of peoples. It's a, it's a mix of so many different kind of peoples from different nations. It's a beautiful place. Uh, you know about the food and the wine and the culture. Uh, and I love it. Any French person I know, we have a love-hate relationship with our country. Really? Oh, yeah. We always criticize our own country. And, but we love it to that. You can't touch it if you're not French. <laughs> or you, we're going to be all against you. But we spend our time criticizing our, our country all the time. It's a very secular country, yeah. meaning uh, religion is, a, is not a topic that you speak uh, on public places. It's private. You're not supposed to speak about it in public places, and uh, it's not well received. Like I said, I was, I was raised Catholic, but we didn't go to Mass. We didn't go to church. So somehow it doesn't really make sense, but that's how people, most of the people were by then. Islam is the second religion in France. It's about almost 10% of the French people now. So it's very uh, strong. And uh, evangelical churches were unheard of. They always existed since the, especially since the 20s, 1920s, that began to grow in France. But it was very uh, secretive. Not, not many people knew about those. That's why most of the time, if you were in an evangelical church, then people thought you belonged to a cult. So... It was not understood at all. And everybody speaks about politics, food, and uh, sex, pretty much. (laughs) Let's be honest. (laughs) So you finish school. You have a plan to go to, you want to work for the UN, work for your government, your country. So I I switched from government to UN because I realized, as I studied diplomacy, that a diplomat is a professional liar. You have to lie to promote your government's official point of view. Even if you know that, you know that it's not the truth. So that's what you're paid for. You're promoting and, and, you know, your government's point of view abroad. And so becoming a believer, I realized I'm not going to be able to do that. Uh, I don't want to lie, even if it's for my government. So that's when I switched and I thought, okay, let's work for a, another organization that won't uh, defend or promote the, the voice of a government, but that will be... Uh, more interested into humankind and human beings and uh, protecting humankind, etc. So I was supposed to join the um, either UN and the HCR. I mean, it's a, an organization in UN taking care of refugees around the world. Mm-hmm. So that's what I wanted to do. And, and something happened. Well, what happened? <laughs> in the meantime, I had met my future wife. So we were still uh, uh, not married yet. We were just uh, fiancés together. And um, engaged, if you want. That's the way we say engaged in French, fiancé. You know the word. Yeah. And so um, the very week I was supposed to go for my final interview and get the job, uh, God talked to us. And he said, uh, you asked me to show you uh, how you could serve me. So here's the deal. Long story short, I'm going to go back a little bit in time. Mm -hmm. Paris in, in the months of August is closed. There's nothing open. 
And my wife is from a Huguenot background. I mean, they've been Christians in her family forever. She had a grandpa who was a first missionary for the French Assemblies of God in uh, what is now the Burkina Faso. Mm -hmm. And her dad is a pastor. Actually, her dad is the pastor who baptized me. Wow. He didn't know that I would become his son-in-law. He would have kept me longer <laughs> in the water the day he baptized me. <laughs> no, I love him. But anyways, I was uh, not doing anything in Paris in August. So I asked her, why don't you find me a job where you live, uh, close to your parents' house? And then... Uh, where was she at? She was in Alsace, in eastern part of France, further east compared to Burgundy. And so I went there. And for a month, I, I, I helped her grandpa, who ran by then a rehab center for drug addicts and abused women and convicts. And so I had my uh, uh, truck uh, driving license and bus driving license that I had a chance to, to take when I was in the, in the French Navy for a year. So I st stayed there for a month and I was uh, helping those drug addicts. And that's when God talked to us at the end of the month of August, telling us, Here's what I'd like you to do. Why don't you work here for me instead of going to UN? Yeah. That was not the same career. Yeah. And I had no qualification whatsoever to work with drug addicts. I never touched drugs in my life, so I was unqualified. All your clubbing, all your... You, you never did? Mm-mm. Interesting. <laughs> okay. I did other things, but not yeah. that one. Yeah. And uh, we realized that it was... Uh, it was God asking us, if you really are serious about serving me, that's what I'm offering to you. Give up your diplomatic career and follow me. Hmm. And my parents are not believers, and, I, and they, they paid for my studies, like, meaning they, they, they paid for my student room and things like that. So I knew it would be uh, excruciating for them to hear me say, because they, they dreamed about me becoming a diplomat, and then... Uh, telling them that I, I would stop this career and switch to become a counselor for drug addicts and, uh, and a lumberjack because we were doing lumberjack work in forest to help those guys and truck driver. That was not the dream they had for their son because I was the only son. So How'd that go over when you told uh, them? That didn't go very well. Uh -huh. for, well, the day I got saved and I, when I told them that I would be baptized, that they thought, oh, you're changing religion. And they were really not happy about it at yeah. all. Because yeah. like I said, you couldn't be a Christian without being a Catholic. So it was tense between my parents and I for a while, but finally they accepted it. And so when on the top of that, I told them, you know, I'm not going to join UN anymore. That was rough. And I understood it. I mean, I was, my heart was broken for them. But I knew that I knew that it was God's desire for us. So we said yes. And the same week that I was supposed to go to Paris to join UN, in fact, I joined this rehab center for drug addicts and I became a counselor and, like I said, a lumberjack and a truck driver for God. <laughs> Not exactly the same career. Yeah. And how did that go? What, like any it, stories that really kind of stick out? Yeah, it, it went well. Actually, it became, um, I really became passionate about it. Really? Because I saw the, I saw many young guys that I could have been the same, like they, I remember one who saw his mom being killed in front of his, of his eyes, you know, when he was like 10 years old by one of her lovers. And uh, then he became a drug addict. And I thought if the same thing would have happened to me, where would I be today? Maybe I would be at the exact same place, you know. Yeah. So I thought life really protected me so far. Yeah. And those guys didn't have a chance. 
And so it became really a, a passion to take care of those guys. And we lost some from AIDS and from uh, overdose. And I mean, that was a rough time, but an amazing time. What year did you finish school? Uh, I finished school in 1991. Okay. Yeah. All right. I had to serve in the Navy for one year, then resume school. And then, uh, yeah. You had to serve in the Navy. Yes. Was, was that a, like a compulsory thing? Kind yes. Of like Israel? Every, every, yes, exactly. For a year, every man really? had to serve for one year. And so, uh, yeah, I was selected to go to the Navy. I was a French teacher. Never set foot on a single ship, you know, for a year. But I had a, it was a great year. I had nice. fun. Nice. And how long were you working with those addicts? And for five years. And I became the director of the structure at the end. And uh, at the same time, we got married in the meantime. Yeah. And uh, we planted a church uh, there. And I was called to become a pastor. So it was a lot all together. Yeah. And we had our first children there. Yeah. But for five years, uh, we did that full time, my wife and I. And it was an amazing. My first sons were raised on the shoulders of uh, gang leaders and drug addicts and uh, convicts. And we were protected. We lived on site with them. No one would have ever touched my wife. They would have been killed. I mean, there was uh, laws between them, you know. You don't touch those who help you. Wow. So that was kind of an amazing wow. time. Yeah. Like a, like a teen challenge center, if you want. Yeah. That's awesome. And starting the church, where did that come from? So uh, the um, Teen Challenge Center, let's call it that way, belonged to uh, my wife's grandfather, and he was pastor in the French Assemblies of God. And her dad was also a pastor of, in the French Assemblies of God. And so um, we planted a French Assembly of God there. Uh, there was a village or a little town without a church, so that's when we decided to plant a church there. And what area of the country were you? Alsace. Still, eastern part of France that speak uh, okay. German dialect. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> how, and how long were you the pastor of that church? For five years. And uh, we discovered different communities. There are Mennonites there. Yeah. And they offered us to rent their, their church when they were not using it. So we began a partnership with Mennonites, which opened my mind to uh, the body of Christ being very diverse and uh, much bigger than just the Assemblies of God. Yeah. Because I didn't know any better. I mean, I was freshly coming from Catholicism, so I had everything to learn. I didn't know about the different denominations among the body of Christ. I had no clue of, you know, what they meant and anything. And what were those years like being a pastor? They were great, great years. A lot of work indeed. But they were exciting years. Planning a church is a lot of work, especially in France. So uh, you're meet with a lot of resistance. People, like I said, they, they look at you like you're a guru from a cult and you're yeah. trying to uh, sell them something that is, uh, that is wrong. You, know, you want to uh, remove them from Catholicism, which is not the idea indeed. So they're very uh, suspicious about you and who you are and your activities, etc. But it was nevertheless very exciting. And then what happened after that five years? So after those five years, so we had already three sons there. Yeah. And so our denomination told us, if you really want to be a full-time pastor, you're going to have to do that 100% of your time. So we moved to a different region. You might have heard about it. It's called Champagne. You might have heard about <laughs> I it. I might have heard of it. <laughs> and so we took care of a small countryside church of 40 people. But we were full-time pastors, which meant by then having a 
really, really small salaries, like $600 a month. And so wow. that was, yeah, that was a, really something, but exciting too. And so we had the joy to see the church growing. And uh, after a year, we uh, were asked to pastor a bigger church. And so we, we said yes, but we kept pastoring the, the small one. So we were actually pastoring two churches at the same time, about 60 miles apart from each other, 70 miles apart. Yeah. And we did that for three full years, had two more sons. So we had our full uh, quiver. Yeah. <laughs> Five sons. And um, that's when a big change, an, another big change took place. Which was? Which was uh, a Tuesday night at a prayer meeting. Uh, we were praying for missions and the rest of the world and countries, etc. And I was praying in my heart and no one could hear me. And I was praying for uh, Africa and Asia and Southeast Asia. And by then there was no missionary from the French edges to uh, the former uh, French Indochina countries, especially Laos. We had one in, in Vietnam, one in Cambodia, but there was no one in Laos. So full of faith. Uh, in my prayer, I told God, why don't you send someone to Laos? <laughs> you know that was a mistake, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because <laughs> God heard me and he right away told me in my heart, and what about you? Yeah. And I told God, no. We were two pastors. There was an evangelist and I was the shepherd. So I told God, no, I'm, 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 I just got here uh, three years ago. Uh, people need me, two churches. I can't leave. It's not for me. And, and God stopped there. But uh, I went back home and it was still very uh, strong in my heart. And I went to Rachel, my wife, and asked her, did you receive anything from God? She said, no. I said, perfect. It's <laughs> great. Don't, don't change anything. <laughs> don't ask any questions. Don't, yeah, don't ask any questions. You know? it, everything's fine. Don't worry. <laughs> and then um, the following Sunday, which is yeah. really amazing, the head of our mission department was visiting our church to talk to my other colleague, the, the evangelist one. He was doing crusades all around the globe. So they had a meeting together, not with me. And now you're going to have to bear with me because what I'm about to say is kind of crazy. Okay. But he was uh, preaching. This head of mission was preaching. And he, he's, he speaks fluent Spanish. So he's in, and he was a missionary to Africa. So he, he's more interested in third African countries and uh, uh, Spanish-speaking countries, South America, Central America, etc. But then two times in his sermon, he said... We have no one in Laos. Oh. Out of the blue, no one knew. And that's the, the, the bizarre part. Rachel was sitting in the church. I was on the stage behind the pastor because he was about to be done with his sermon. And so I was about to take the mic after him. And suddenly on the left wall for me of the church, I saw four letters on fire appearing like wow. a vision. Yeah. And it was L-A-O-S, which is Laos. Yeah. And I looked at Rachel and she was sitting in front of me and I knew in my spirit that she had the same vision. Really? And as a matter of fact, that, that was the truth. Wow. So, but we didn't say yes. Really? No, because when we talked together about it, we said, God, you might have forgotten one, one piece. You know, we have five babies. They were between uh, five by then and uh, just born. You, so you guys were pumping them out pretty quick. <laughs> yes, that was our <laughs> choice. <laughs> and so we were like, no, uh, Laos had no good hospitals by then. I mean, it was a really the poorest country in, in Asia. And we were like, no, it's not for us. 
you forgot about our kids. And maybe a couple of weeks afterwards, I was closing the church on a Sunday morning. Rachel was already driving back home with the kids. And my oldest son, who was almost six by then, he talked to my wife and said, Mom, I, uh, my brothers and I, he couldn't even say brothers correctly. That was a funny word in French. Yeah. He said, we need to talk to dad and, and, and you because we want to say something. And she was like, what do you want to tell us? And he said, my brothers and I, we talk together and we want to go to, to another country, speak about Jesus. Oh, wow. And so we cried a lot because wow. we didn't have faith and we thought God forgot about our kids. But um, he told us, what, what do you think? Do you think I'm not preparing them to? Wow. And so finally we said yes. Dude. Yeah, that was, then we, we surrendered wow. to, to God's will. <laughs> it was madness. I had no idea how it could be done. But it was the, like a year after we were gone, we were going to Laos. So you had no idea how it could be done, but how was it done? Like what fell into place for it to happen? A series of miracles. Like I, I, I met with the mission department. They told me there is no way we can send you to Laos. We don't have the money. Yeah. We don't have the means. We don't know anyone there. So keep praying. So I kept praying. And then I met a, a, a pastor who was from uh, uh, Finland. And he told me, I know the Finnish uh, mission department of the Finnish Assemblies of God. I can take you there and talk to them about uh, mission in Laos. So I went to Helsinki met with uh, the Finnish missions there, and, and that's how I had my first contacts with people working in Southeast Asia. And then uh, the mission department told me, you know what, we don't have the money, we don't know how, but we believe your calling comes from God, you can go. Wow. But make it happen, we don't know how, so you're gonna have to do, it, to do it by yourself, but do something about it. And so in December 99, my wife and I went to Laos for the first time, met with the Finnish missionaries there. Couldn't call them missionaries, it's a communist regime. Mm -hmm. Second most difficult after North Korea. Really? So by then it was. Met with the American Assemblies of God missionaries there and realized that we would likely work more with the American maybe. And so that's, we came back to France and said, that's it, we, we found a way. Uh, we're gonna try to develop partnership with the American Assemblies of God there. And in December 2000, we were leaving for good with our five sons. We had someone to replace us at a church. We had found a, some, another pastor who was willing to take our job, our position. And that's it. We were gone. In one year, which still amazes me. <laughs> so 1999. 1999 was our first trip to Laos. And year 2000, we moved the whole family. With how, babies. Yeah. And how long were you guys there? Eight years. Now... You were working with the Americans. I assume then you knew English? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I learned few, I mean, like any French student, we learn British English at school. But uh, no, we, we, honestly, we didn't, we didn't know really uh, good English. So, and those missionaries were from Florida and Alabama. Yeah. So their English was quite remote from British English. <laughs> they had a... A strong accent. You said I have an accent, but they do too. <laughs> Sometimes I was wondering, is it English or is it something else? <laughs> and so we learn English with them, actually. Really? Uh, and Lao language, which is the national language. Yeah. How old were you at the time? 
Oh gosh, I was in my 30s, yeah, early 30s. Yeah. How difficult was that to learn two languages in your 30s? Very, very difficult, yeah. Especially uh, Lao, which is a tonal language. Really? Yeah, and, and the government by then didn't want foreigners to learn the language. It was forbidden for foreigners. There was no language school. So you had to learn at the market. You had to learn, you know, the way you could. And, uh, but they would not teach you the alphabet. They would not teach you the grammar rules. They would not teach you anything because it was forbidden. They didn't want Westerners to corrupt the people of Laos with capitalism and new ideas. So that was kind of tough to learn. By then, it's a lot better now. Yeah. And what were those years like? They were fantastic years and extremely difficult years. And, what, and specifically, what were you doing who, were, you, were you working specifically for an objective or with a certain people group? Yep. Or? So interestingly enough, because I had degrees in diplomacy, that's how I, I was allowed to have a work visa in Laos. Really? Yeah. Because I, 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 I could work with development agencies and the organization we worked with was a development agency. So we specifically brought development to remote villages in the rainforest and very remote places of northern Laos. We work with uh, hill tribe people like Mongs or Kamu and different tribes, mm-hmm. bringing uh, you know, uh, purified waters, water filters, and, and uh, holistic development. And it was really an amazing uh, time. Very, very difficult at the same time because from pastoring two churches, preaching five times a week, having uh, hundreds of meetings a week, I'm a little bit pushing it, but it was a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, suddenly, I was no one. Mm-hmm. I couldn't speak the language like a five years old. Uh, no one needed me, and I didn't have a church anymore. So it was like leaving a train at full speed and hitting a wall. Yeah. And uh, after a couple of years, I fell into a depression. Really? And uh, developed a cancer because of it. What kind of cancer? So, yeah, it was, uh, but it was part of the story. Yeah. And I, I became mad at God for what I thought was lying to me. So my brain knew that God doesn't lie and God loves us and has a perfect will for our lives. But But you felt like... My guts were telling me, I'm wasting my life. I'm wasting my ministry. No one is interested in what I have to say or anything. And so I I was really struggling in my faith. And so with this cancer, I I mean, I was 37 years old when I got the cancer. What kind of cancer? Testicular cancer. Oh, Chernobyl, likely, yeah. because in France yeah. we had the Chernobyl cloud and likely it was a consequence of it. Yeah. But anyways, um, really? for several months I was out. I had surgery, radiotherapy, etc. And I thought, well, I have a medal on my chest. I was wounded at the battlefield. I'll be back to France pastoring churches. You were wounded in the battlefield? Meaning I served God, okay. went overseas, went Got on the it. mission field, obeyed okay. God. But uh, okay. as a result, I got a cancer. Yeah. yeah, that was my wound. Yeah. And so I thought, okay, that, this is my exit door. I have yeah. all the good reasons to go back to France. And God told me, nope, you're not going back to France. You're not done. What? So you stay there. I felt trapped by God because leaving Laos would have been disobeying God. And I didn't want to disobey my God. And at the same time, staying there was like staying in a, in a jail. So wow. it was rough. <laughs> what pulled you out? What snapped you out of that depression and out of that self-pity? It's a good question. It took me a couple of years because after the cancer, I had a meningitis. 
because oh my, my yeah, there, there was a long season of battling against death and and uh, threats from the enemy, and so I went to a conference actually in in Quebec. So my wife thought I needed it, and I, I think she was right. Yeah. <laughs> At the beginning, people pr- were, were praying for me, and afterwards they were praying for her because it was not pretty. You know, when a guy is sick for so long. I was not a pleasant person to be around. Mm. And so that's at this conference that God touched my heart and it was the beginning of me getting better. And uh, I realized this was all part of his plan for my life, as bizarre as it sounds. I had never been sick before, nothing serious. So I had to go through that to have compassion for those who are going through those kind of things. And um, I came back and in fact, this very uh, season birthed the ministry that we developed with my wife since. Which is? Which is. <laughs> when we asked for help, we were doing so bad. Uh, I asked my organization to help us. And they told us, you know, you're pastors and missionaries. And they said, I quote, you're superheroes. Pray more. There's nothing we can do for you. And Rachel and I were like, pray more. I mean, I'm mad at God. So how can I pray more? And one day in my bedroom, God told me, he gave me the verse when Jesus is on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only place where Jesus doesn't speak to his God talking about his father. He doesn't use the term father, but he says God. And through that verse, he told me, don't you know that I know you're mad at me? And he said, you can tell me, you can speak to me about it. And it set me free. And I began sharing my bitterness, anger to God, and it healed me because he's my dad. So he was okay with me telling him all the the problems I had in my faith and my relationship with him. How important do you think it is for people that are in the thick of depression, problems Mm -hmm. in their life, etc., with that weight... How important is is it for them to have that freedom to be able to just yell at God and just get it out? It's crucial. My religion did not allow me to do that, but my God said it's okay. And so it's crucial that you have to know that God is your dad. When my sons were not pleased with me, when I would say it's time to go to bed and stop playing, maybe they would pout, you know, or be mad at me, but... I knew the long-term best interest for them. Mm -hmm. And God is the same. He knows when we're stuck. And sometimes he doesn't answer our prayers or he answers in a way that we were not expecting. I didn't go on a mission field to spend months in a hospital and uh, surgeries and thinking that my kids will grow without a dad. Those were tough seasons. But um, it changed me deeply and it made me a different person. I did not realize it. I thought it was... It was all a waste. But people who knew me before said, Eric, you have changed. You're much deeper than you've ever been. Really? And that's how I began to realize, no, God was really doing something through this cancer and everything. It was not a punishment. It was not a consequence of disobedience. It was just his will. I don't wish cancer to anyone. Yeah. But I don't regret it for a second. I don't wish to go back through that again, indeed. Yeah. But I had to go through that. It was part of his design for me and for us. So what was next then? So we stayed in Laos more years, uh, kept doing development and underground pastoral training that I can't Mm -hmm. really speak about even Mm -hmm. today. 
uh, but we were doing a soul training with the underground church, the Pascoli Church. And so um, we became uh, country coordinators and regional directors. And we saw many more missionary couples and singles struggling with uh, all kinds of issues. And we realized that uh, it's not because you're a pastor or a missionary that you don't struggle with uh, sex addictions or any kind of other things. And, uh, and depression, like it was my case. But they have no one to go to because everybody thinks they are superheroes of faith. So they can't turn to anyone because they're supposed to be strong all the time. Mm-hmm. And so one time, a couple came to us, missionary couple, and they said, if you can't help us, we're going to get a divorce. Mm-hmm. It was worse than that, but uh, mm-hmm. that's pretty much what they said. And they had four kids, young kids. Oh, and we tried to help them and we told God, this is unfair. You, you know James Bauer, 24, the series? Yeah. When James Bauer is, all, is in front of a bomb and he has to defuse the bomb in 10 seconds. And there's a blue wire and a red wire. One's going to explode. The other one's going to defuse the bomb. And he doesn't know which one. So it's like, pick one. That we thought we were doing that. We didn't know what we were doing with them. And we were like, maybe we're going to do something wrong and it's going to hurt them and they're going to get a divorce. And, but, or maybe we're going to heal them, but we have no clue. Being a pastor was not enough. We didn't know how to help them. We did our best. They're still together today. So wow. praise God for that because we had no clue. And we cried out to God and said, suddenly a burden came and we realized those people have no help because they're supposed to help the others. So they're not supposed to have problems. And we said, God, we need to be trained. We, we feel it's something you're putting on our heart, but we don't know how to do it. Yeah. And long story short, once in a secret meeting, we met a, an American couple, another American couple. They were in Asia for a few days. And um, in the morning I was preaching and I was sharing, I'm a pastor without a flock because I'm a shepherd at heart, but I had no flock to pastor. And because uh, we had some international gatherings, but it was segregative in people's houses and sometimes in a public place, but it was very rare. So anyways, and um, I had no flock. And the same day, the afternoon, this American pastor speaks and he said, I'm a shepherd of shepherds. And when he said those words, oh, in the morning, God told me, I'm going to show you your new flock. I need to know what it meant. And so the same afternoon, this guy says those words and the Holy Spirit comes back to me and says, this is the man I want you to meet with. This is what you're going to do. Go and talk to him. And I told Rachel, I want to talk to this pastor. And she said, no, because only the people in, in crisis were, you know, talking to him. And she was like, I don't want people to believe we are in crisis. We were because I was not still not really doing strong. But uh, so we finally went. And he told us, if you're really serious about that, why don't you come and spend a week with uh, my wife and I? We, you're going to go through an intensive with us, intensive week of counseling. And if you're serious about it, we'll see what happens and if, uh, if you really uh, are called to do that. And so we went. Yeah. It was in Canada by then. The retreat center was there. Spent a week with them and realized, yes, that is what God is calling us to do. And they agreed. And they said, if you're serious, we are willing to train you. We live in Colorado, so you would have to come to Colorado. We had no money, uh, five almost uh, preteens and almost teenagers. And uh, we still had one more year to go, you know, in order to find one more time someone to replace me in the organization, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. We talked to our sending agency and they said there is no need for your new vision. 
Everybody's fine. We, there is no need for that. So if you choose that, you'll what? be on your own. Yes. What? <laughs> yeah. It was a long time ago, but yeah. Oh my gosh. That's what they told us. Th it wasn't that long ago. No, I it mean, wasn't that long ago. Probably what, 2000? It was in 2007 when he went. Yeah. We don't, have, we don't have a need for, for people to... Help pastors to, and missionaries. Exactly. <laughs> what? We, we didn't realize the, the extent of it, but we touched a taboo, a huge taboo among pastors and missionaries that, that we, we can be in need of help too. And so, funny enough, I was supposed to become the next head of the mission agency. And one more time, God put us in front of a choice. He said, you can go and be, become the head of this mission agency And you have a salary, you have a, everything, or you, you can follow what I put on your heart and, and jump. Yeah. And so in, if you remember, it was in year 2008, a difficult year for the States, yeah, if you remember. It's a difficult year around the world. Yeah. I mean, yeah. But especially here. And so we went to the U.S. Embassy in Laos, applied for a visa, and the lawyers, attorneys here were telling us in the States, were telling us, you know, There is no visa right now because it's such a crisis. It's going to take at least a year. And I was like, it can't take a year because my sending agencies say that they were done with us pretty much because of our new vision. So they were done with us. They were not interested anymore. So the bridge was burned behind us already. So we went to the, the embassy. And um, believe me or not, uh, we asked for a, a, a two-year visa. And so we were told it would take about a year. We had our visas in two hours. What? And uh, they gave us a five-year visa. What? Yeah. <laughs> It's going to take a year, two hours later. Here's your five-year visa. So Here's more said, than what you asked for. Yeah, they said, give us your pa French passport. Come back tomorrow. You'll have it. So Wow. wow. <laughs> it was the first miracle of a series of miracles that took us here. Someone rented a house. that we, we still, Today, we still don't know who it was. For two years for us, it was paid. Wow. Uh, people bought furniture. Someone offered a suburban to us because we had five kids. Five kids with uh, all of them wanted to go to university. We didn't have the first dollar because we were like on our own. Yeah. And God has been faithful beyond imagination. Beyond imagination. The, the things you read in books really happened to us. And uh, it was not because of our faith. I was so scared. The, the yeah. sleepless nights that I spent in here in Colorado because I, I was like, I've destroyed my kids' lives. I, I'm never going to be able to pay for university here. It's so expensive. I have no real income. I mean, yeah. but God provided. Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. It, it is amazing. So you ended up settling in Denver then? Aurora first. Aurora, yeah. And so we joined this ministry called Shepherd's Heart Ministry okay. with Pastor Larry and Laurie Russell. They trained us for two years. We worked uh, for them for a, a total of seven years together. And then five years ago, we created our own ministry. So, which is? Which is uh, serving alongside ministry. And so we, when there is no COVID, uh, we usually travel about six months a year uh, doing preventative work and a crisis-oriented work with uh, pastors and missionaries. We've touched on this in a few episodes in the past about the importance of ministering to the pastors, to the leaders in the church, to missionaries, etc. Uh -huh. Reinforce that. Talk more about that because it's something that my heart 
was really moved during my time that I worked at Focus on the Family because I worked on a tape series called Pastor to Pastor with HB I London. I know that, yes. <laughs> and and I, I would hear these stories and it would just break my heart yeah. over these pastors and, and what they would go through, yeah. not only in their personal life, but also being attacked from elders and deacons and members of the church and getting fired for no cause and yes. the way but, people would just turn on them at, at the drop of a hat. What convicted us was like uh, the destruction is so huge because when, when a pastor goes down for any kind of reason, it's not just one man who goes down. It's, a, it's the whole family. It's his marriage. It's the, his kids. Suddenly, no one talks to them anymore. Suddenly, they can't go to that church they used to go every day. And the kids, they grew up with many people, but suddenly no one can talk to them because they are the pastor's sons and daughters. So they're totally rejected and banned and, you know, and uh, sacked from the church. So the destruction is huge. It's, a, it's a, not just one person, it's a, the whole family. And then talk about the, the ripple effects on the Christians themselves. And like you said, it's not always because there is a moral failure. It could be for any given reason, sometimes wrong reasons. And, and we've seen that with the missionaries too. Sending agencies not really paying attention to their own missionaries, not checking on them. We've seen uh, missionaries uh, abandoned, literally, in, in, the, in the country where there was no, no one else they could talk to. And I even remember a single lady missionary ended up marrying a, a Muslim guy as a second wife because she was so suffering from loneliness and no one visiting her ever. And uh, those things should never happen. So those were our motivations. We thought, no, never again should those things happen. And so we want to provide help that it won't go that far. And if anyone needs help, it could be done in a secretive way. It could be done in a confidential way. Then people will be able to stay where God wants them to be and, uh, and complete their work, complete their mission, and complete God's work there. What sorts of services and help do you and your wife provide? Two different kinds. The first one is the preventative kind. So we give conferences all around the, the world especially for mission organizations and uh, um, denominations or, or groups of churches or international churches. And we teach on how to uh, protect your, your marriage when you serve, how to protect your family as you serve, how to um, protect teams. There are so many, 70% of missionaries leaving the mission field before the time is right, leave be not because of the locals, but because of the other missionaries and the conflicts they have among the teams. So we, mm. we teach a lot about how to resolve conflicts and how to build uh, healthy teams. So that's our first work. And then we do all kind of uh, um, uh, counseling sessions online indeed, but also we have what we call an intensive week. That was the model developed by Larry Noy Russell. Other ministries developed it too, but It's very efficient. We take one couple at a time. We don't do group sessions. Yeah. And for five days, we're going to go very deep into their issues. And we see tremendous results. Mm. And we see people who are about to divorce or people who had affairs and being restored by the Holy Spirit in a very uh, deep way. And, and they're still together now and still serving God, which is the, the end goal. We want to finish the race together. Mm. If people want to learn more or they want to support uh -huh. how do they 
Well, they can go on a website. Which is? And uh, ingratuldefool.com. And so they can have all, it's French and English. <laughs> <laughs> Guess what? And they can have all kind of resources. And uh, my wife wrote a book about uh, 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 female sexuality, which I recommend even for guys. It's called Hooray for the Vajayjay. <laughs> <laughs> because we realize sexuality is a big taboo uh, in uh, the Christian world, which should not be the case, because God created sexual intimacy. And so we've been robbed by, by the devil about the fact that we could speak freely about it. And, and uh, so many marriages have been destroyed because of sexual issues. And mm. so we realize we need to talk more about it. So that's what we do. So we are more and more invited in ch by churches and denominations to speak to pastors about sexuality, sexual intimacy, and things like that. That's wonderful. <laughs> Eric and Rachel .com. Yes. And we will have a link in the show notes. Mm -hmm. So that way, if anyone wants to come alongside you guys mm -hmm. and help, support, or even just pray. Pray is fine. Yeah. Yeah, we have a prayer team whenever we have one of those weeks of in intensive weeks, we have a prayer team that is strong of about a thousand people praying for those couples. They don't know where they're from. They don't know what they do. They don't know who they are. They never know. But they know that we have a couple and then they pray for these couples and we see miracles taking place because of those. That's cool. People praying behind us. How has COVID affected the ministry? Very badly. Really? It's been a, it's been a tremendously difficult year for many uh, pastors and small-sized churches, they can't gather anymore. It's been very hard in, in Europe, especially, but really? here in the States, too. And so many pastors have lost their congregations or um, they can't preach anymore. They can't gather the congregations. So it's been really, really rough on, on many of them. Mm. Missionaries, too. I mean, some have left their uh, country of uh, service because they couldn't stay because of the COVID. Mm. And so they are stuck in their in a different place and the people they used to take care of, they can't take care of them anymore. So it's uh, very hard on them. Mm. Eric Dufour, thanks yes. for being on the Holy Smokes podcast. Let's get to rapid fire questions. Oh. Hey everyone, before we get to the rapid fire segment, I wanted to reshare a note that Kay and I got from an 80 year old listener that lives in Southeast Kansas and still works in his small town family business. He told us, I really lack male friendships because so many of my friends have passed the last few years, so I would value a group of men to spend time with. I'm learning some valuable lessons through the podcast and wish I was 30 rather than 80. I plan to stay tuned for more interviews. May God bless you and your group in 2020. He also talked about how we wrestle with the concept of men and women partaking in fine tobacco and drink because of the church and denomination he grew up in, but the podcast is changing that. When I showed this to Kay at his house recently, we both started tearing up. This is my why for doing this show. So if that moved you, would you consider partnering with us? Kay and I want to develop the website to better facilitate groups. We want to travel and get your stories for the podcast. We want to get back to doing two episodes a week, but we need your help. There are two simple ways you can help us out. Become a regular supporter at patreon.com slash holysmokes. That's patreon.com for as little as $5 a month. You can get early access to episodes, ad-free versions of the podcast, free swag like a Holy Smokes t-shirt, and more. That's patreon.com slash 
holy smokes. You can also make a one-time tax-deductible donation at paypal.me slash holysmokesclub, and both of those links are in the show notes. Thanks. Rapid fire! Fire. Here. So when did you first try cigars or pipe? I used to smoke pipes when I was a teenager. Really? Because I thought it was cool. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, it is cool. It is cool in many ways. But uh, when you become a believer, this uh, in France, you're not supposed to smoke anymore. And, and smoking could become an addiction indeed. So uh, I asked God to, to set me free from that because I was making my own cigarettes and stuff. Yes. And he, he did. So yeah. I was uh, delivered from, from tobacco when I was like uh, in my 20s, early 20s, when I got saved yeah. at 21. And uh, I never touched a cigarette or any tobacco since till seven years ago uh, through a friend of mine, uh, Eric Sellerier, uh, another French guy yes. uh, who was uh, doing a, a sabbatical in, in Colorado. And we are very good friends. And he told me, I've met a guy named Kay. And uh, <laughs> this guy's crazy. He smokes I've cigars. Heard about him. I've heard about this guy named Kay. Yeah, you heard about him? Yeah, yeah I've heard I'm about glad. Him. He's a great guy to, to, to get to know. And he said, uh, he smokes cigars. And they, he called his group Holy Smokes. Can you believe that? He said, would you like to join me? Because he didn't want to go alone, you know. And so I said, yeah, but, uh, you know, I'm not smoking. So I, I, I can't smoke a cigar. But I said, I'm willing to go with you. And so we went. And I met with a great group of guys, but I was like, but I'm not going to smoke a cigar because I was yeah. delivered by God from it. So, yeah. But then uh, it was a, God arm wrestled with me for months about the fact that he wanted me to join that group. And I was like, but you delivered me from tobacco, so it doesn't make any sense. And step by step, I began, Eric and I would usually share one cigar together a Connecticut, usually a very light one, you yeah, know, yeah. and we would smoke uh, half of it uh, each. And then uh, I got uh, not addicted, but uh, used to smoke cigars yeah, and yeah. Enjoy, uh, began enjoying it, actually. Yeah. And I met with uh, my best group of guys ever. I can say that honestly, not because uh, I'm speaking in front of you, but it's true. And I, I met the most spiritual group ever. And one day someone said, if you have a glass of scotch in one hand, and a cigar on the other hand, you can be sure you, you don't have any um, uh, extremist Christian around you. Any, you know, so you're among good people and yeah, uh, not yeah. religious people, but yeah. uh, people having a relationship with Christ. And that's what I discovered. And in those times when it was still difficult, being in the States, raising funds and, you know, the missionary life, very often I found uh, brothers who were there to pray with me and uh, offered... Uh, support through their friendship and prayers and it's been my best group of guys ever since that's wonderful what do you prefer cigars or pipe so cigars yeah what's your favorite cigar my favorite cigar would be uh late hour churchill uh it's a davidoff Ooh. churchill late hour it's uh for some reason i, I love churchill first yeah. <laughs> not the size of the cigar but the the, the person yes the historical person and uh, this is a great great cigar it's a bit on the uh expensive side but it's uh, it's worth it what's your best dollar for dollar cigar i love um uh, isla del sol cigar 
It's a um, Drew Estate cigar, I think. Yeah. And uh, with the, the tip is sweet. Yeah. Uh, I love that. It's good tobacco, <laughs> not an expensive one. It's my, it could be my everyday cigar. Where's your go-to place to get your smokes? Uh, Smoker Friendly or Cigar International Online. If you were celebrating, what's your splurge cigar? I would take a Hibiki. <laughs> Cohiba. <laughs> what's your favorite liquid pairing with your smoke? Oh, definitely uh, could be a Lagavulin, 16 years old, or um, Arberg, a scotch. I, I really love scotch, so yeah. Nice. Who's the most interesting person you've ever met through cigars? Paul Philidis. Paul. He's the one who welcomed me maybe at the beginning, like between Europeans, you know? Yeah. <laughs> he's definitely, it's just one, I mean, it's unfair to the others because definitely there's more than oh, yeah. just Paul. But Paul was the one who made me feel welcome beyond imagination. He gives the best hugs. And best hugs ever on earth. If you don't feel good, just go to Paul. Oh, he's going to yeah. make you feel good. <laughs> What's the best place you've ever smoked? Like your most memorable, like this is just... I, I, this is amazing. Yeah, on an island. Ooh, uh, I like it already. Yeah, <laughs> on an island uh, on the seashore with a with a twenty, no, a thirty years old rum Ooh. from Madagascar. Oh, oh in wow. the Indian Ocean. Even better. The best uh, rum I ever had in my life. Maybe the best alcohol period. Yeah. And uh, Bihiki. Oh. With Eric Celerier. Together, that was an amazing uh, cigar and amazing drink. Growing up in Wisconsin, I always had this fascination with the Pacific Ocean. My first time there, it was, it was magical. Yeah. And then just over a year ago, 13 years ago, we spent um, three weeks in Western Australia and we finished it with an Airbnb right on the Indian Ocean. And I was like, I want to spend more time <laughs> along here because this is like, this is magical. There is many magical islands in the Indian Ocean. I, I can, really, oh, that's oh my gosh. Mauritius, I would recommend. Mauritius? Mauritius Island, yes. Ooh. That's where I was that time. All right. <laughs> Are you into Marvel or DC? Both, but my favorite superhero is Green Lantern, so I'd say Ooh. DC. Green Lantern. He was my favorite as a kid. <laughs> what, what drew you to Green Lantern? Oh, that's a long story. We still have yeah. time or what? <laughs> yes, absolutely we have time. Okay, I preach on Green Lantern. I have a message on Green really? Lantern, believe it or not. <laughs> All superheroes have superpowers. You can't really relate to them. Green Lantern's different because he received his superpowers from above. And uh, he has to pledge to uh, kind of... Uh, Recharge. Yeah, but before recharging, he, ha he has to use his, his powers only to serve the people in need and the, like the widows and orphans, etc. Yeah. He can't use his powers to do anything else. And as he's using them, uh, he has to recharge because he's uh, losing his powers. And whenever he recharges his, uh, with his uh, ring with the lantern, he has to recommit himself to this pledge that he's going to serve, etc. I never abuse his powers. And in many ways, to me, it's like a, a symbol of Christianity. Mm. We receive powers and, uh, through the Holy Spirit. It's not because of us, it's because of him. And we're not supposed to use it for our own good, but to serve. And we have to go back to Christ every day to recharge. So that's why I love Green Ooh. Lantern. And he's not alone. They're a team of Green Lanterns. Yeah, absolutely. He can't solve issues by himself. He needs a team around him. Star Wars or Star Trek? 
both again. Okay. I grew up on the old Star Trek, but uh, I remember in December 77 going to my first Star Wars and I didn't stop since. So, <laughs> yeah, I love both. Favorite food? Uh, Asian and French. Ooh, what's, 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 what's your favorite French dish? Oh my gosh, there are so many. Uh, but definitely I'm for Burgundy, so uh, escargots. Ooh, I've never had escargots. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> you should. Well, well, well I, what, 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 I, what I think I hear is that you and your wife should make me some. Yes. And bring the boys and I up. And yeah, that, that's something and, we could do, yes. Oh, all right, I'll try Let's, let's put that on the calendar. With a good red burgundy, indeed. Ooh, all right. You bring the red burgundy, I bring the escargots? Deal. <laughs> Deal. All right, let's get that on the calendar. Dogs, cats, neither, or both? Both. Yeah. I had dogs, I had cats. I don't have any right now because it's you not easy travel to travel so the world yeah. with animals. But we had both. I love both. Did you have a nickname growing up? Kiki. I, I hated it. Kiki, what does then? What is that? Doesn't mean anything. Okay. <laughs> My parents called me that. <laughs> What's one unusual fact that few people know about you? Oh, uh, yeah. Okay, I love hard rock. Really? Oh yeah, really. Like what? Really. Like like what? What bands? Scorpions. Ooh. I grew up on that. I still love it. I listen to it in my car. I, <laughs> my wife knows about it. <laughs> That's my secret scene. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's a sin. It's some good music from the 80s. If you were stranded on a desert island with only one movie, what would it be? Interstellar. Oh, that's a good one. Thank you. Matthew McConaughey, right? Yes. Yeah, that's a, that's a great movie. Yeah, I that's love it. That's a really good movie. Yes. The science behind it. And yep. Yeah. Oh, wow. You a reader? I assume you're a reader. Yes. What are your one, favorite one to three books not titled The Holy Bible? I just finished a huge biography of Winston Churchill. Ooh. Took me a couple of years to, to read it. <laughs> I absolutely loved it. I love Churchill. Uh, I'm passionate about his life and the things he's done. And so I love biographies and uh, I'm not very strong on novels or you know, yeah. things like that. I prefer uh, historical books yeah. and uh, yeah. Are you an early riser, a night owl or more normal? I. I'm an early riser, 4 a.m. every day. Wow. It's because of Laos, because at 4 a.m., we used to live in the former royal capital of Laos, Luang Prabang, and at 4 a.m. and 4 p.m., the whole city, in every Buddhist temple, they're going to hit the gongs yeah. for 20 minutes. Yeah. And so <laughs> at 4 a.m., so yeah. I was like, before they worship the spirits, I'm going to pray to God before they do. Yeah. So that's how it started. If you could live anywhere... Where would that be? That's difficult because part of me is French, part of me is, is American, part of me is Asian. And honestly, I, I, yeah. I feel home in, in Laos and I feel home here in the States and, and back in France. So a, a bit of the, those three places. Yeah. What's your greatest strength? What's your greatest weakness? Compassion. Maybe a, a strength is a strength. And a weakness is uh, I tend to let people trample me. Mm. And uh, yeah, because, maybe because of too much compassion sometimes. Yeah. yeah. I pay the price for it. Yeah. Yeah. Who's been the greatest influence in your life? 
my wife's uh, father, uh, grandfather, really? the missionary. Really? Uh huh. Talk about him. He was a, a man of an incredible faith. Really? Uh, was in the Second World War. Was a, a prisoner. Was a, a chaplain. And the German, when he was made prisoner, said, "Do you want to go back home? Because you're a chaplain. You can. You're a pastor." And he said, "No, I'll go with my, wow. with my f other uh, soldiers' friends." And so he went to a concentration camp in Poland. Was bombed and I mean uh, suffered many things, and then from there in '46 went to Africa, and uh, is a great, great man of faith. So two revivals that shook uh, what is now Burkina Faso, wow. incredible miracles, and uh, he built up my faith. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh huh. When you hear the word successful, who's the first person you think of, and why? It's not a person. It's a it's a word, it's family. To me, uh, success is uh, when your family is uh, following God and, and uh, happy living together. Mm. Sorry, cool. it's not no, a name. No, no, that's good. <laughs> no, that's, that's really good. What do you do for self-care to rest, to recharge? I uh, take my camera and go and, uh, and shoot at, you know, uh, I do street photography. That's how I relax and I, I feel... Christ being with me when I do photography. That's how I relax the, the best. That's cool. And I tend to come to Holy Smokes <laughs> on Friday. Absolutely. What's the best type of cheese? French cheese, indeed. Like what kind of cheese? Oh, a cheese you wouldn't, you wouldn't like to try. It's called Munster. Not a monster. Munster. It's a extremely, extremely strong cheese. Really? Yeah. My wife forbid me to put it in the fridge. I had to put it uh, on a window outside of the house. But it's, uh, it's an extremely strong one. It's an acquired taste. Yeah. But I grew up on strong cheese. I'm from Burgundy. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's an amazing cheese. Uh, most of the people would think it stinks too much to be eaten. Yeah. But you have to separate your nose and your palate. But uh, the smell is strong, but the taste is just mind-blowing. Interesting. <laughs> that sounds cool. All right, final three questions. Okay. What does Holy Smokes mean to you, and how has it contributed to your spiritual journey? So, first thing that comes to my mind, amazing group of guys. Vulnerability, and a place where I, you know, when, when I had a, a week with an intensive, and it was tough, rough, and we dealt with difficult things, I, what I love the most, it's on Friday, when I'm done with the intensive, I take my car, I run to, to my Holy Smokes group, in Castle Rock, yes. and I can be myself, mm. and I can be vulnerable, and mm. I can just enjoy a cigar, a scotch, and uh, listen, and be casual, and, uh, and really empty myself there. And it's fantastic. It's, uh, it's medicine. It's the best medicine ever that I've found <laughs> so far. If you were to have a holy smoke with any three people throughout history, living okay. or deceased, who would they be? Can't name Jesus. So... I would use, uh, the first name would be McGilvery. Who? McGilvery. Okay. You might not know who he is, but he's an ancestor of, of uh, Megan Hardry. Okay. Uh, he was the first missionary who went to northern Thailand and Laos, who brought the gospel to those people there. Tremendous man of God. I don't know if he was smoking cigars, but I wouldn't mind having a long conversation with him. Meg also had... Had, she has had a, a, a portrait of him. Yeah, you know. and, and she also named him as one of her. Is three. that right? Yes. Second person might be my, I mean, Rachel's uh, grandfather, 
Uh, for sure, I, I know he never smoked tobacco, <laughs> but I would totally enjoy smoking one with him and uh, just to have one more chance to listen to his amazing stories about the revivals and stuff. That's cool. And the last one would be definitely Winston Churchill. Yeah. Yeah, that you want to smoke a cigar with this guy <laughs> and listen to him. Last question. Okay. If we're to meet one year from today. Okay. And I got a bottle of the best Burgundy. Okay. What are we celebrating? We're celebrating growth. Uh, celebrating. Uh, we, we are in the process of trying to open a, a French pastry and bakery here in Castle Rock or Parker. So we would celebrate the opening of that Ooh. place that would be part of our ministry. It would be a way to raise funds also for the ministry. Really? So we would definitely celebrate that with a croissant or Ooh. that goes with champagne or anything you want oh. for that. We would celebrate growth in ministry, churches being stronger. We work with a church in Paris that is fast growing. It's called MLK Church, yeah. Martin Luther King Church. Yeah. And we are very much involved in that church. So we're supposed to have a grand opening of a new building. And uh, because of the COVID, it couldn't be open last year. So we hope we could celebrate this grand opening and see the growth of the gospel in French-speaking countries. Any ETA on when that pastry shop Bakery? No, I, I wish 2021 would be, uh, we'd see this opening taking place. We, all, we were almost there, but then COVID hit us and it was not possible anymore. Well, you know for a fact that there are going to be a boatload of holy smokers that are going to come for that opening day because. That's I'm, why I'm bringing bread and nice, croissants. And a nice, <laughs> a nice, warm croissant. Is, yes. Oh, it's so good. Heaven on earth. Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> Eric DeFour, thank you for being on the Holy Smokes podcast, my man. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Steve. I appreciate that. Love you, guys. Before you leave, yes. I want you to say in French, welcome to Holy Smokes. Bienvenue à Holy Smokes. <laughs>